Father, we thank you for um, we thank you for the fact that uh, the rain comes on the just and the unjust. Uh, everybody in this world is a recipient of your mercy and your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for uh, we thank you for clear nights when we can see your handiwork all around us. We're reminded that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Uh, their speech isn't heard, but there is a message there of your glory and of your greatness and of your handiwork. And even when the skies are cloudy, Lord, that's uh, oftentimes the conditions for rain and for water and for uh, your, your sustaining goodness to us on a daily basis. We are mindful, Lord, that, that you are the one who has given us life. You are the one that is in charge of our, our, our lives. We, we are grateful, Lord, that, uh, that we're able physically to be here tonight. Think about our, our friend Paul Lanier, and he's having a, kind of a rough, rough time right now. And so we want to pray for Paul, not only tonight, but throughout the week, as uh, he has lost his ability from this Lou Gehrig's disease to, to take care of himself, to do what uh, for so many years he could do. And we pray, Lord, that you would undergird him and his wife, that you would encourage him. We're grateful that Paul will not always be in this condition and that this is a temporary thing. For all of us, Lord, as we are dealing with different issues, as we get older, uh, health used to be a given, but it, uh, we're realizing is a great, great gift and a great privilege, and we thank you for it. We assume it'll always be there, and when it isn't, we're, we're somewhat stunned. But, but we thank you for the truth of the scriptures that you tell us that there's more to life than what we just experience on this earth. We don't die and go out of existence. We will live forever. We will live forever. And because of what Christ has done for us and in us and through us, uh, we will live in your presence and with you and rule and reign with you. It's a staggering thing to think about. We can go weeks and months and not think about it. But it's the truth. And when we ponder it, it gives us great hope and it gives us great courage and it gives us tremendous perspective. We would ask for perspective tonight as we uh, open the pages of Titus. Thank you that this is a living word. Thank you that it is able... Uh, to, to make accurate cuts in our lives where there needs to be surgery. We, we have a host of, uh, of situations. We are facing uh, numerous circumstances of pressure and difficulty. Uh, what we all have in common, uh, although our circumstances are quite different, what we all have in common is that we're all having to walk by faith we're all having to trust you in, in some significant way. We, we are counting on you. We are holding up your word and counting on the promises because without them, we're not going to make it. But thank you, Lord, that, uh, 
that a promise has never failed. As Joshua said at the end of his life, you didn't fail in one promise, and you haven't failed in one promise to us. So tonight, may your spirit teach us, encourage us, rebuke us, confront us, whatever needs to be done. We've all got, we've all got blind spots. Shine the light in the blind spots. In the areas perhaps where we're giving offense and we don't even know we're giving offense. Would you do that for us? We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. A brain researcher was thrilled to find out that in Colombia, there was a brain store. You could actually buy brains. Well, that was going to help him tremendously in his research. So he made his way down to Colombia and uh, found his way to Medellin, Colombia. Kind of a rough spot. Walked into this brain shop, and it's like a butcher shop. I mean, it's just, these brains are all underneath the case, refrigerated, and and he asked the guy, he said, how would you come about this? He goes, well, you know, it's a, it's a tough country, and there's a lot of violence, and um, there's, uh, well, let's just put it this way. There's a lot of murders, there's a lot of assassinations, and uh, if you know the right people, you can get brains. And that's what we've got here. And this guy was thrilled because he's a brain researcher. He said, well, what's this right here? He goes, well, those are uh, engineer brains. He says, very analytical. He goes, well, how much are those? And the guy says, they're $3 an ounce. He goes, okay. And he said, what about right over there? He goes, well, those are uh, computer programmer brains. He said, well, uh, what are those around? He goes, those are $4 an ounce. He said, what about those over in the corner? He goes, those are attorney brains. Those are the lawyers. He said, how much are those? He goes, $1,000 an ounce. The guy goes, 1000 an ounce. He said, that's a little high, isn't it? I said, you know how many lawyers we got to kill to get an ounce of brains? <laughs> when you look at the book of Titus, it's very clear that God had given Titus a particular task to do. Uh, we're familiar with his task. He was a young associate of Paul's, and he was, uh, uh, he, he was told to stay in Crete, and he was told to set in order that, rem- that which remains. Uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, this statement is made by Paul. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove, with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now, this was his task. Uh, We've all been given tasks by the Lord. We've all been given assignments. He has assigned us to different posts. We have have tasks when it comes to marriage. We are told to live with our wives in an understanding way. We're told to grant them honor. We're told to uh, love our wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, we are given tasks in our 
employment. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. So we're to work as long as we're physically able. Uh, so what about retirement? Well, you, you got to stay active. You, you, nobody just wants to sit around all day. Uh, you might do something different. Uh, but we're to provide. Uh, we, are to, uh, we are to father. We're to grandfather. We're to be involved in some kind of ministry, and everyone's got different gifts, and everyone's got different ministry. So the fact of the matter is we've been given different tasks. Uh, the the tasks that, that Timothy had been given, um, it's interesting there, it says in verse 15, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. That's a specific set a task that he was supposed to accomplish and that he was supposed to do. Um, when, when you are given a task, when, when you are assigned a task, it, it doesn't take a lot of brains to understand that if that's a God-given task, you're going to get opposition. When you're on a mission that the Lord has given to you, when he has assigned you a task or a responsibility, this is what I want you to do in the kingdom. This is what I want you to do in your home. This is what I want you to do at work. When, when you are about his business, you can count on the fact that in some way, shape, or form from the enemy, you're going to get some opposition. Just how it works. When we get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about us. When a guy is not serious... The enemy is not concerned with him because he's already got the guy neutralized. But when a guy gets serious, when a guy is committed, when, when a guy is, is seeking the Lord first, then, then the enemy will make sure that he gives it everything he's got to oppose you and to keep you from being uh, instrumental in that task and effective in that task. So we're going to get opposition. Now, Let's look at Titus a little more closely. What was his task uh, in 15? These things, these things, what things? Well, we're going to go over them here in a minute. These things, now contextually you can see in the section we were in last week, in 11, 12, 13, and 14. If you look at verse 12, he, he says I, I, you should be instructing us uh, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Um, reminding them of what Christ did in 13 and 14, that he redeemed us. And by the way, some of you guys asked me, because I, I had five points last week, and a couple of you guys said, well, I only got four. I, that's because that's I mentioned the fifth, but I didn't tell you it was the fifth. Um, but I know you're sharp enough to figure out which one it was. So I'm just going to move on to the next verse. <laughs> if you're wondering, you know, number five was, was the grace of God purifies us, and that's in verse 14. Uh, he says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Uh, there were some other things uh, that were part of his task. If you look at 1.5, We've already mentioned this. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Uh, here's another task. I want you to appoint elders in every city. That was part of his task. Um, 
in chapter 1, verse 11. Part of his task was to silence false teachers. doesn't tell him how to do it. He just says, I want you to do it. Uh, in, in 113, in regard to the same false teachers, he wants uh, Titus to severely reprove them. Well, is that Christian? To severely reprove somebody? Well, if they're teaching false doctrine, it is. You see? Um, yeah, it is. I, I, get, I get a little concerned sometimes. Um, because I, I, you know, I think we've gotten soft in the church. You you ever think that? We've gotten a little soft. And sometimes uh, people who need to be severely reproved are not severely reproved. But that was part of his task right there in verse 11. Uh, They must be silenced because they are upsetting entire families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That was part of his task. Uh, In 2.1, he was to speak to things which were fitting for sound doctrine. And then he was to teach older men certain things, younger, or rather older women. And then they were to teach the younger women. And then he circles back around. If you look at verse um, 6, part of the task, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Um, in 2.12, we just saw this. Uh, he's, part of his task is, is to encourage them to deny ungodliness in their own lives. Now, now, these things, all those things would come under verse 15. These things. Well, what's he supposed to do with these things? Now, watch this. These things I want you to speak the idea there is, is to speak out, to proclaim. I want you to take these things on. That's your task. Then he says this, these things speak and exhort. Uh, some of these things come under the heading of encouragement. Sometimes people don't need to be reproved. Sometimes people need to be encouraged. And, and you know, as fathers, we got to be careful. Some of you guys grew up under fathers, and all they did was reprove. That's a tough way to grow up. That's hard. I, 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 man, that, that, leaves, that leaves scars that, quite frankly, you may, you may never get over without a tremendous struggle. So we want to make sure we're not doing that with our kids. I don't want to just reprove. I want to, I want to encourage. I want to comfort at the appropriate time. See, that's... That's the challenge of leadership, is bringing to bear the appropriate trait at the appropriate time. Sometimes there needs to be reproof. Sometimes there needs to be encouragement. Uh, Then he says this, these things speak and exhort and reprove, convict, uh, convince. That's part of the equation sometimes. With all authority. Um, It's kind of interesting. With, with, with all impressiveness, with, with command, uh, and do it in a way, he says, so that no, no one will disregard you, no one will despise you, no one will overlook you. Now, now I'm just setting stuff up here because I want to ask a question. I'm, I'm pretty much going to trampoline off this verse tonight. 
This was his task. These things I want you to do. Um, do it with authority. Don't let them disregard you. Don't let them overlook you. Okay? Now, here's my, here's my question. As Titus went about his task, uh, do you think that he got any opposition as he was going about the task that he had been assigned? Well, you know that he did. Uh, because that's just the way it works. Of course he got opposition. Uh, have you noticed if you want to have a good marriage, you're going to get opposition? It seems like just about everything in this culture is set against having a good marriage. Uh, if, if you want to be uh, a, a man of integrity in, in your place of work, in your place of business, uh, it, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how much pressure there is to not be that kind of man. If that's, if that's a goal in your life, you're going to get all kinds of opposition to being that kind of man. I, generally speaking, they'll leave you alone. But when push comes to shove and a lot of money is on the table, you'll get pressure not to be that kind of man. You'll get opposition to not be that kind of man. Why is that? It's because we're swimming upstream. It's because we're, we're going against the grain of this culture. Uh, that's because broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. So, so the answer is, yeah, you're going to get opposition. So what do you do when you get opposition? Well, the tendency is to just get along. The, the tendency is, the, the tendency would be to stop speaking, to stop exhorting, to stop, stop reproving, and to kind of back off and just be a Christian nice guy. But uh, that's, not much, that's not much when it comes to leadership. Uh, Titus got opposition. We don't have a lot of details. But you know if he took these kinds of stands and if he did the task, he was going to get some opposition. I, I was reading about a group this week that had a lot of power in a particular country. Uh, this group, uh, politically, were ardent socialists. They believed in free health care, and they believed in guaranteed jobs. They confiscated inherited wealth, and they spent vast sums on public education. They purged the church from having any voice in public policy. They promoted a new form of pagan spirituality, and they inserted the authority of the state into every nook and cranny of daily life. This group declared war on smoking. They supported abortion, euthanasia, and gun control. They loathed the free market, provided generous pensions for the elderly, they maintained a strict racial quota system in their universities where campus speech codes were all the rage. Uh, this group led the world in organic farming and alternative medicine. Their primary leader was a strict vegetarian, and his second in command was an animal rights activist. They're known as the Nazis of Germany. I thought that's interesting. 
I have no further comments on that. I just found it interesting. Found that in uh, Jonah Goldberg's book. Uh, now, that is kind of interesting. It'd be real interesting if you were a Christian who lived in Germany during that time. Because if you were a Christian living in Germany, there'd be tremendous pressure. Most pastors just went along. Now, some of those things, you know, I mean, not all those things are necessarily bad. But where they were going was bad, and what they were doing was bad. Uh, most of the pastors just went along and got along. There were a few who spoke out. There were a few who, uh, who exhorted. There were a few who uh, gave reproof with all authority and they would not be overlooked. One of them was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, because of what he taught, um, about three weeks before Berlin was liberated, they put piano wire around his neck and pushed him off the chair. And he gave his life for what he believed. Um, sometimes there are consequences to taking a stand. Sometimes there are consequences to speaking out. Uh, nobody likes those consequences. But you see, um, that's what leadership costs sometimes. You know, tonight I want us to think a little bit about the task that the Lord has given to us and the opposition that we will encounter in different ways and from different angles that will come into our lives when we were going about completing the task that he has given us to do. Um, when, I was in, um, when I was in fourth grade, I was shooting baskets with a kid across the street by the name of Craig. We're just shooting hoops. And I said, uh, I said uh, Craig, I said, uh, where's your dad? I never see your dad. And he said, oh, my dad doesn't live with us. I said, really? I'm fourth grade in Bakersfield, California. I said, your dad doesn't live with you. And, and he said, no. And I said, why doesn't your dad live with you? He says, well, my mom and dad are divorced. And I said, what's that? Can you imagine that? This was 1823. It was right about 1959, um, maybe 58. Yeah, my dad doesn't live with us. Why not? Oh, my mom and dad are divorced. What's that? Can you imagine a kid in fourth grade not knowing what divorce is? The reason I didn't know what divorce was, I mean, I'd heard the term, but I wasn't real familiar with it, was that um, no one in my family was divorced. Nobody. Oh, no one in my fourth grade class was divorced. All the kids in my fourth grade class, all their parents uh, were still married. All of them. Craig was the only kid in my fourth grade class whose parents were divorced in 1959. Can you believe that? He was the only kid. Now, it's completely flip-flopped, hasn't it? 
in a generation, we've gone from a culture of marriage to a culture of what? Divorce. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, why is it that people didn't used to divorce? Were people just nicer? People just easier to get along with? Was life not as complex and as difficult? Well, you know that's not true. The, the reason people didn't divorce, and we're, we're talking about not just Christians, we're talking about non-Christians. The reason people didn't divorce is because they thought it was, anybody know the word wrong? They thought it was wrong. And what would happen is even if people were having difficulty, they would, they would sacrifice, and you would often hear this, that, well, they're having difficulty, but, but they're going to stay together for the, for the kids. Funny how things have changed. You know, it's, it's easy to get married. It's hard to stay married. It's hard to stay with the task. Uh, you're going to get opposition. You're, you're, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to have struggles. It's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to be... That's just the way it works. Um, I think the first night we did this study on, on Titus, I was talking about the fact that it's the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, they're looking for a few good men. That's what, um, that's what Paul's writing to Titus about. Now, now, let's say a word about divorce here. Because whenever you bring up divorce, you've got to talk about this. Not everyone in here who's divorced wanted the divorce because we've changed the laws. Uh, it used to be back in that generation, back in the 40s and 50s and prior to that, if you wanted a divorce, you couldn't get a divorce unless your spouse would grant you the divorce. Remember that? You couldn't just decide you wanted a divorce. But you see, something changed in the culture. And what happened was we had this earthquake that hit in the 60s, and everything changed from moral absolutes to moral relativism, and all the stuff that went along with that. And as a result of that, we changed the laws so that you can get divorced basically any time for any reason. It's, it's a true statement that, that it's easier to get a divorce than it is to fire an employee. We've just undercut that principle. And that's why we change so much in this culture. Uh, marriage was hard back then. Marriage is still hard. But, but you see, what I'm trying to say is, if, if, if you attempt to do this thing right, you're going to get opposition. And sometimes you might get it from a spouse who you thought was a Christian and who indicated they were a Christian, and they announced one day, I'm up and I'm out of here. I want nothing to do with you, and I want nothing to do with the Lord. Now, that happens. that's happened to a lot of men. It's happened to a lot of women. Uh, so we've, we, when we talk about these things, there are those who initiated the divorce and those who didn't want the divorce. We don't like to talk about it, but it's a fact of life. Um, when we as men are going about our task, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about our careers. Let's talk about work. I think most of us guys, we get our self-worth from what we do from our task. Uh, 
That's why I mentioned when, when we tend to meet guys in a social setting and you're just getting acquainted with somebody, within about 15, 20 seconds, someone's going to say to the other guy, well, what do you do? Because that's, that's the world we live in. We provide. We, we have tasks. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to handle the mortgage. We've got to, the buck stops here. So for, for men, our, our self-worth and the way we value ourselves and the way we measure ourselves often has to do with, uh, with our success in terms of, of our work. That's just how we're wired. Um, when we're doing well in those areas, we're pleased. But when we're not doing well, we get intensely frustrated. Um, I wonder how Titus felt about himself as he was going about this task of setting in order that which remains. So Paul, Paul wrote him this short, this short letter. I mean, it's only three chapters. Um, we read it, we study it, we walk away from it. Do you think things just went easy for Titus as he was trying to implement his task? I don't think so. I, I think there were times he was intensely frustrated. I think there were times when, when he was not achieving his goals and he wasn't achieving his objectives. There, there, was, there was this issue and there was this issue. Um, that's just the way life is. When you're going about your task, there are going to be times, I think, when the enemy is going to send giants your way to keep you from accomplishing your task. Uh, you remember when they were going into the promised land? And they had the reconnaissance mission of the 12 spies. It was a pivotal time in the nation of history, in the nation of Israel, in their history. And they go into the promised land, and you got one man from each tribe, and they see the land, and they come back, and they're carrying a cluster of grapes, and it takes two guys, and they give the report. You know the story. Uh, Ten of the 12 spies said, it's a great land, it's a wonderful land, but... There are giants in the land, and there were a literal race of giants. We can't take these guys. Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will fight for us. It seems to me as we go through life, we're always come up against some giants. There are always giants of opposition that are attempting to, uh, to drain us of our faith and to drain us of our, uh, of our courage to move ahead with the task that God has given to us. Uh, about six months ago, I was thinking about some of the giants that we face as men. And um, I came up with four. There are more than that, but I want to throw these out to you guys. Because I, I think the reality is, as, as we're going about the tasks that are before us, I came up with four giants. And I think these giants, in particular affect men as we go about the task that God has called us to do. Uh, let me go ahead and give them to you. Number one, and these are giants that will oppose you. The first one is this. Uh, there's the giant of little or no results. You ever run across this giant? This is a tough one. We, we love it when we meet our goals. We love it when we meet our objectives. We, we, we love it when we are, quote, unquote, successful. But when you have a task, when you're trying to accomplish something, when you're trying to take a hill, uh, 
and you run into the giant of little or no results, what happens to you? How do you feel? Let, let me ask you this. Do you think Titus might have dealt with this giant? He gets his letter from Paul. Hey, I want you to set in order that remains. Appoint these guys, you know, appoint these elders, and I want them to have these characteristics, okay? And so he starts looking for some guys, and, you know, these guys are new believers. And, man, you know, I thought this guy had it, and we put him in that position, and, gosh, he didn't have it. And, and he didn't have that wisdom that we needed and kind of... Do you think he had any defeats like that? I think he did. Little or no results. And when we find ourselves as men in situations where we have little results or no results. I've been praying about this for three months. I've been praying about this for six months. I'm under this situation of intense pressure. And there are no results. I'm not getting any answers. How do you feel? You feel frustrated. You feel like your life is out of control. Um, you probably get angry. Now, you, you try not to get angry because you read in the Bible you're not supposed to get angry. But it comes out. You guys ever heard of displaced anger? You're angry about a situation over here, but you can't express the anger, so it comes out usually at home. That's how it works. All right, that's the first giant. The giant of little or no results. And that is a tough place to be as you're attempting to go about your task. Here's the second giant. The giant of unfulfilled dreams. A lot of times we get married and we had an image of who we were marrying. And as time goes by, we find out that image is not quite reality. Oh, and by the way, this can work the other direction. It can work both ways. Uh, the giant of unfulfilled dreams. Or when you're in your 20s, and how many of you guys are in your 20s? I didn't ask that tonight. How many of you guys? Raise them high. I want to see who you are. You don't need to be ashamed. We're glad you're in your 20s. That's great. We used to be in our 20s. We can't remember our 20s, but we know we used to be there. The, the 20s, man, that's, those are great years. And when you're in your 20s, you got life ahead of you. And so what do you have? you got these dreams. you got these hopes. You want to accomplish certain things. You, you want to see this and this and this in your life. And that's all good. And that's all great. But as we go through life, what happens is we get into the 30s and we get into the 40s. And, and you know, I hope you guys know this. And studies have shown uh, a lot of guys, we know about midlife crisis around 40. But the fact of the matter is, almost as many guys around 30 hit a crisis. It's not as well known. As almost as many guys hit a crisis at 30 as do hit crisis at 40. And that shouldn't surprise us because, once again, you've got these dreams, you've got these hopes. Well, you get out of your 20s, you hit 30. And sometimes in your career or your marriage, those dreams, you're like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working out the way I thought it was going to work out. And you're 30-something. Or you do okay, but somewhere around 40, well, man, I thought it was going to be like this. And it's not like that. It's not like that. Sometimes life is disappointing. Sometimes life doesn't turn out. And so when we have dreams and they're not fulfilled, well, how do you feel? Well, man, you get frustrated. 
and, and you get upset and you start looking around and you start looking for a way out and you start looking for how do I adjust this? How do I manage this? Here's the third giant. None of these things are pleasant, are they? None of them. The third giant is the giant of physical and emotional exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, You know, when you're young, you never, you never think about taking a nap. But when you get older, this is how you know you're old. Uh, you, start, you start liking naps. You, you kind of start lusting for a nap. You'd really like a nap. Why? Why? Well, because the older we get... What's, this is really interesting, because we get older, and what happens is we, we lose some energy. We don't have the energy that we used to have. We don't have the stamina. We're not able to keep going at the rate. I was in Barnes & Noble last week. I go there about once a year. That was a joke. Um, I have season tickets to Barnes & Noble, but I, I walked in there. And I had a really neat thing happen, because there was a book on the shelf about Winston Churchill. Now, I think I pretty much read, I don't know how many books on Winston Churchill. Um, I'd never seen this book before. And I thought, I can't believe there's another book out on Churchill. But they, whoever put this book together was brilliant because they had an endorsement right on the front cover. And, and you know, you had the title and the author. But up in the corner, and it really stood out, it said, and you could tell it was an endorsement. And the guy said, another book on Churchill? What else could possibly be written about Churchill that hasn't been written before? Well, this book has done it. So I bought it. <laughs> and I've been reading it. And I will say to the guy's credit, he's got some stuff in there that I never read before about Churchill. It's really interesting. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember, um, but email me. Um, uh, anyway, anyway, one of the things I was reading that was really interesting to me is some of you guys that know that after World War II, uh, um, what's his name? Churchill. I'm really excited to be here tonight. I need a nap. I think that's it. <laughs> I need a nap. Uh, Churchill uh, wrote, uh, wrote these massive volumes on, on World War II. And uh, what he did was he negotiated. You know, Churchill didn't have a lot of money. He liked to live real high on the hog, and he, you know, lived in the, in the finest social circles. But he didn't have a lot of money because his father didn't inherit a lot of money because his dad was the third-born instead of the first-born son. So he didn't have a lot of money. So he made his money off publishing. Well, when he came out of World War II and then was not re-elected prime minister, he, it's really fascinating, he started negotiating publishing rights in countries all over the world. And, and he, landed, he landed a deal with publishers. I don't know how many different publishers, but it made him instantaneously wealthy. Somewhere, and the guy couldn't even really give you a definitive number, somewhere he signed, somewhere, upfront money between 18 and 50 million dollars today's money 
So instantly, all the money issues were taken care of. Put a team around him, researching, and it was a blessing in disguise that he did not get reelected prime minister because he's writing these books. Massive, massive efforts. Gets volume one out. Thick, big sucker. Sells like crazy. Comes out with number two. Thick, massive, unbelievable research. Well, he's got three more books to write, and he looks up one day, and he's 75 years old. And where I am in the book right now, he's 75, and he doesn't know if he's got the physical or emotional energy to write three more volumes like that. Interesting. You don't have to be 75 to experience that. Sometimes, just by the task, we're doing these tasks. I'm doing this task. Have I talked recently in here about the plates? You remember the guy on the Ed Sullivan show? You remember that guy? You young guys don't remember. You say, who was Ed Sullivan? He was a guy with no talent. He was just boring. But he had a variety show on Sunday nights, which I could never watch because we went to church on Sunday nights. You can sense the bitterness in my own heart. But every once in a while, I'd be sick, and I wouldn't go on Sunday night. So Ed Sullivan had this uh, program, and everybody watched Ed Sullivan. He always had variety acts. He'd have Elvis on or, you know, circus acts or something. We had this guy that would take, like, these pool cues, and they'd be on a kind of like a table. And then he'd take a plate, and he'd get, he'd get that plate spinning and get that sucker going, then he'd get another one. He must have, how many of those things did he have? 20, 25 of them? And you're watching this guy. He gets those, he's got those plates going, and he gets down, he's got 20, 20 deals, and he gets down to about number 13, and they got a wide-angle lens, and number one is starting to wobble. It's lost its, its momentum. And you're thinking, how the heck? And so the whole act, this guy's whole act, was running back and forth and keeping all the plates spinning. And you got exhausted just watching the guy. That's kind of how life is. You're about your task. You're about your assignment that God has given to you to do. And one of the giants that hits us at different times in our lives is um, the giant of physical and emotional exhaustion. You know the other thing that comes under this? You know the other thing that exhausts a lot of us? We've got a task, but here's what's exhausting. We get bored with the task. When you're bored with the task that you used to be excited about, you know what that does? That drains you and robs you of your energy. It's a tough place to be. See, some of us, where we are, some of us, we're in a place not of excitement and not of a place of high energy. We're in a place of maintenance. And it makes the task hard. And, and, and we lose our joy, and we're hanging on by our fingernails. Let me go to the fourth giant. The fourth giant that we often face that opposes us is the giant of a future without any prospects. One more time. The, the giant of a future without any prospects. That's a tough place to be. Um, and why am I bringing all this up? Well, I'm bringing it up because if you're a man and you love Christ and you're trying to be responsible and you're going about the task that God has given you, you are going to encounter these 
giant. That's just how it works. So the question is, when you encounter these things and you get this kind of opposition, how do you handle it and what do you do? I'd like you to flip over with me to the book of Lamentations. Now that's another relatively small book. You say, well, now where's Lamentations? Well, it's back there somewhere. Yeah, it's left of Ezekiel. It's to the right of Jeremiah. Lamentations, uh, you know, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah was called by God. God said, before I formed you, I knew you. And he was given a task. And basically, he was to be one of the prophets uh, to the nation of Judah. And, and he was to declare to them uh, the truth of God. But basically, what God said to him is, Jeremiah, listen, here's, you're going to be my prophet, and you're going to speak to this idolatrous, hard-hearted, rebellious nation, and they are not going to listen to you. Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, God pretty much told him up front, listen, I want you to prophesy to Judah. I want you to prophesy to the southern kingdom, and I want you to be faithful. I want you to preach the word, and here's the deal. No one is going to respond. Now, what a great task. I, you know, there's, there's not a lot of hope there. There's not a lot of joy, though. Uh, hey, you can preach your heart out and give an altar call, and no one's coming forward. You can sing just as I am 93 times. No one's coming forward. That'd be a hard task. That was basically... So, so Jeremiah is known in Scripture, he's known as the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. Now, when you get to Lamentations, and what's basically happened is that the nation has been taken into captivity just as Jeremiah and the other prophets said, this is what God's going to do. He's going to carry you off into captivity, 586 B.C. Now, you remember Daniel and his buddies? They were taken to Babylon during this time. Um, so people's lives were upturned, completely changed. And in Lamentations, uh, Lamentations 3 is, is a guy that is um, dealing with some very, very difficult circumstances. You say, why is he dealing with difficult circumstances? Well, I'd say for four reasons. Number one, he's basically had no results. That's that first giant. Number two, um, there are a lot of unfulfilled dreams. That's why he's in this situation. N number three, this guy is exhausted physically and emotionally and spiritually, and number four, there's, uh, he's facing a future without a whole lot of uh, uh, prospects because they're going to be in captivity there for a long time. It's a tough place to be. Uh, well, how do you find hope and how do you find encouragement? Now, now, let me say this. Jeremiah was in a very, very unique situation. Um, we are not in that situation. But we can learn from this guy's uh, own personal experience and his own personal difficulty and his own personal frustration. If you look at chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, all the way down to verse 18, he's basically dealing and describing with his disappointment and his depression. It's, it's really a difficult section 
to read. Um, uh, we'll just pick it up at, at 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I, I like that. You know why I like it? It's so cotton pick and honest. When you have little or no results as a man, <laughs> your soul has been rejected from peace. You don't have peace. What do you have? You have frustration because you're not able to achieve what you want to achieve. Uh, a lot of us in here are, are, are results-oriented. I think I mentioned to you uh, down at Dallas Seminary when you when I went into the, the doctoral program down there, they, uh, they give you a whole battery of, um, they're not tests, but they're profiles. They're, they're figuring out, you know, how you're wired. And one of those profiles is, is called Performax. And long story short, you fill out all this stuff, and then you self-score it, and then you turn to this number in the back and you figure, well, on, and then they, and they analyze you in three different areas of your life. And on every single one of them, I was results-oriented. Results-oriented. And by the way, I was extremely depressed. That was during the period of time when I was in the worst depression of my life. And you know why I was in the worst depression of my life? Because in my ministry, I had no results. None. And you take a guy that's results-oriented, all the way through his being and his fiber and his DNA, and he doesn't have any results? Well, my soul has been rejected from peace. Why? Because I'm not doing anything. I'm not achieving. I'm not moving ahead. And so the next line makes sense. I have forgotten happiness. You know, the scriptures are honest, guys. Now, watch the physical and emotional and spiritual exhaustion in verse 18. So I say, my strength has perished. It's gone. It's died. I'm, I, I'm out of gas. I, I'm running on fumes. Now, watch this. And so has my hope from the Lord. Now, you know what? That's where some of you are in your marriage. That's where some of you are as you look out over the next few years uh, because of your health. You've found out that you've got Parkinson's or you've found out that you've got cancer or you've found out that you've got Lou Gehrig's disease or you've found out that So how do you handle this? How do you handle it? Uh my strength has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Um, this stuff is real. This stuff happens to Christians. But, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we were exempt from this stuff? Wouldn't it be nice if that prosperity gospel were true? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't it be great if just everybody got healed right now? I mean, would that not be neat? Wouldn't it be great if everybody just was rolling in the money? Wouldn't that be great? And there was no financial pressure whatsoever. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Dad, gum, that'd be nice. Wouldn't it be great if you and your wife just got along? 
and you agreed on everything. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, it'd be wonderful. Well, heaven's coming, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So are we going to hit rough patches like this from time to time? Yeah, okay. Now, what do you do, what do, you do when you hit patches like this? And, and can, we, can we say this? As we've studied the Scripture in here together, we're coming up on seven years in this study. We keep coming across that the way that God develops men that he wants to use is through difficulty and hardship. The, the way that he develops us is through trials and through trusting him and through growing, and that's why we continue to have trials. Some seasons are more intense than others. God is gracious and God has been good, but, but is, how do you deal with this stuff? When you're in it, what, what's, what's the solution? All right, watch this. Verse 21. Here comes the rescue and the relief. All right? Watch this. Oh, and by the way, the circumstances haven't changed. Do you know that you can be rescued and that you can experience relief in the midst of difficult circumstances without your circumstances changing? Did you know that? So how in the world can that happen? Watch this. 21. This I recall to my mind. To my mind. I got I to be honest with you guys. Sometimes in here, I, I feel like a broken record because we keep coming across the same stuff. But Christianity is about the mind. Christianity is about truth. Christianity is about facts. How many times have we said that in the last several weeks? This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Now watch the fact that he's going to grab onto. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. That's a fact. That's an absolute fact. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So, nothing's changed except he recalls something with his mind. This is a phenomenal passage. Uh, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Although nothing's changed that I want to change, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. It may appear that they've ceased, but they haven't ceased. And then he goes on and says this, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. I've got a drill that I go through at night. This, this is what I do with my life. Um, uh, I used to have trouble, Mary and I were talking about this last night, uh, with our nephew and one of our sons. We were just kidding. You know, three out of the four of them are having trouble sleeping at night. And Mary said, I wish I could just drop off like Steve does. And, and I said, you remember, I used to have a lot of trouble sleeping, and I used to have a lot of trouble sleeping. But, you know, I don't anymore. I have a, I, here's what I do. Here's how I go to sleep. At night, I start winding down. And uh, I go to bed, and here's what I do. Um, I, have a, I have a stack of Louis L'Amour Western novels on my, uh, 
What do you call that thing? Nightstand. Thank you very much. Not Churchill. I can't read Churchill. It's too intense. But Louis L'Amour, you say, why would you read Louis L'Amour? Because um, it's not intense. It's just, they're just good stories of the Old West. There's a good guy, and there's a bad guy. And there's a woman who's in need. And she needs a good guy to help her. And this good guy is going to do the right thing. And what, and what I do, it, now, I, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I've got over 90 Louis L'Amour novels. <laughs> Most of them I have read somewhere between eight to ten times. I mean, I pick one up and I say, you know what, I've read this. I mean, I could give it to you. But I read them again. And it doesn't take me but a page or two and I'm back into it. And you know what it does? It just... Uh, it helps me to escape. And you say, should you do that? You're a Christian. Oh, I'm into escape, big time. <laughs> when I need to sleep, you say, well, why don't you read the Bible? Because I've been studying all day. And I can't be thinking through something exegetically. I just need to want, so what do I do? I read Louis L'Amour. And, and, and about three or four pages, I start yawning. And as soon as I start yawning, I'll give it two to three yawns. This is dead serious. I'll give it two to three yawns, and then I put the book down and I turn out the light. And then, here's what I say. I say, I thank you, Lord, as I'm going to sleep here, that tomorrow I'm going to wake up. And your mercies are new every morning and they're waiting for me. And you know what that helps me to do? It helps me to fight off worry. There's going to be new mercy. Then I get up in the morning. And you know what I do? I grab my Bible, and I sit down. And the very first thing I do is, I thank the Lord for what he did yesterday. And I enumerate the mercies that I received. This morning, I thank God for four things that happened yesterday. And if I told them to you, you'd say, well, those aren't real big things. Uh, they were mercies. And I recounted them because I didn't have those mercies 24 hours before. But yesterday you did this and this and this and this. Now, did some stuff happen that wasn't all that great? Yeah, but you did this, this, and this, and this. And so I make sure I recount those. And then what I do is I take the day before the Lord and I'm reading the scripture and I say, Lord, you know what? You know where I am. And I need that mercy, Lord. And sometimes you're in a season where you're not seeing the results you want to see. And some of us are there. And when I'm in a situation where I'm not seeing the results that I'm hoping to see, that's where you look at verse 25. Watch this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Lord, I'm getting up. I'm going about my task. I'm going about my business, which you've called me to do. I don't want to touch sin with a 10-foot pole. Keep me from pride. Keep me from being an idiot. Keep me from blind spots. So, Lord, I'm going to do what I can do. But, Lord, I'm waiting for you to come through in this area.
and in this area, and in this area. And you know what that does? What does that do? The Lord's good to those who wait for him. So when you're in that situation where you're not seeing the results, when you're in that situation where there's unfulfilled dreams, um, I'll close with this, Let's, just on marriage. Uh, there, there's a couple that I'm aware of that right now, they're just having a phenomenal ministry to couples that are really, really deeply struggling in their marriages. It's really interesting to watch what God's doing in their lives. Uh, what's really interesting about this couple is that they were divorced for seven years. That's what's really interesting. I, I mean, it was over. It was done with. It was... Um, really interesting and, and and basically because of the situation that they're very open about there was a betrayal and what happened the one who had done the betraying the Lord got a hold of him but the other one been so betrayed they weren't going to trust that individual and basically it was without hope it was without hope. And I mean, nothing. No progress. No. And today, they're back together. And you know what they do? Pretty much full time, they minister to couples that are in the exact situation that they were in. It's amazing how God works. It's just amazing. It's called resurrection power. When we think there's no hope, God loves to come through and show us his greatness and his power. So if you're in a place where you're exhausted because you're not seeing any results and your prospects for the future are looking kind of dim, can I encourage you to stay with your task? Can I encourage you to stay with what God has called you to do? And can I encourage you to wait on him for his goodness and his graciousness, and his perfect timing. This is a walk of faith, guys. It's a walk of faith. And there are no shortcuts. Oh, and one more thing. Let's seek him more than we seek relief from the situation. Sometimes we want the relief, and the relief becomes an idol. But let's seek him first and his righteousness. These other things will be added unto us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. It gets tough sometimes. It gets brutally tough. It takes our breath away. It gets so hard. And we lose hope. And we lose our joy. And, and peace is a memory from the past. And happiness. Happiness. What, what's that? It's what we used to be. But, but Lord... Would you help us? When, I'm so thankful this section is in the scripture. I'm so thankful for the honesty of Jeremiah. And I'm also thankful for the power of the word of God that we put into our minds and we live off truth. We, we need a massive dose of courage. We need a massive dose of hope. And for those among us tonight 
who are really in the depths. Infuse that into our hearts. And as we go to sleep tonight, may we remind ourselves that your mercies are new every morning. And in the morning when we get up, maybe on the way to work, we need to list out what it was you did for us in the last 24 hours. And then we'll commit the next day to you. We're living a day at a time in faith, trusting you, keeping our eyes on Jesus. In his great name we pray. Amen.